it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. John Marini. Dr. Marini um, is a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota, where some of our former trainees are now are, are now faculty as well. So uh, I feel we have a connection to the University of Minnesota in that in that regard. Um, he trained at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine as well as the University of Washington, Seattle. He's the author and editor of, of numerous um, articles, textbooks, um, published more than 400 uh, scientific and educational articles. And, and really, um, from what I've heard, and, and Dr. Marini and I haven't had a chance to meet in person, but what I've heard is, is not only is, a, is he a phenomenal um, researcher and educator, but a, a, a true, genuine person um, that, uh, that, that is really kind of a, a mentor to many um, in the field. Today, he's going to be talking about practical assessment of um, ventilator-induced lung injury risk from ventilating power. Uh, without further ado, Dr. Marini, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you here with us in, in Baltimore. Thank you very much, Caleb. I I uh, I'm feel very honored to uh, be kicking off this uh, this series, and uh, I hope that the content will be of interest and uh, actually stimulate some thought as well. My title, of course, is Practical Assessment of Villi Risk. What's the Real Mechanical Cause? And I'll start off by saying, you know, we really don't know what villi is in the clinical setting. We think we can protect the lung uh, based on outcome studies that have been uh, based on populations. But at the bedside, you know, really, how can we assess that we have villi or are causing villi? And that's still an open question. So I think what we really need to do is to investigate the real mechanical cause and understand that. And if we can, then we can take protective measures that make sense anyway. Now, I think all of us here know that since the year 2000, we've been evolving our concepts in lung protection from initially low tidal volumes using less than, less than was customary to lower plateau pressures to trying an open lung approach with uh, uh, recruitment and high-end expiratory pressure. And currently, uh, since about 2013, 20, 2015, we've been uh, focused on low, keeping low driving pressures and using prone positioning in the most severe patients. And I certainly ascribe to all of that. But being an investigator and somebody who's curious about physiological concepts, I have to ask the question, is airway driving pressure enough? It seems to have taken primacy in what we do, but you know this difference between two static pressures, plateau pressure and positive end expiratory pressure, is, uh, is not very satisfying. Uh, certainly, as the ratio of tidal volume to compliance, it's, uh, it's thoughtful to think that it, it takes our tidal volume and accounts for the capacity of the baby lung because of the compliance value. So it integrates tidal volume, plateau pressure, compliance, and PEEP, and it seems to be a very logical, uh, magical uh, eye through the needle. So you have to ask what's lacking in this, uh, this uh, easy-to-calculate index at the bedside. Well, first of all, you have to you have to understand that any airway pressure alone does not account for the diversity of regional damage that you see in a lung. This is one of my uh, most uh, 
impressive slides from 1983. I was not an author on this paper, but it certainly impressed me. Young man initially with ARDS uh, was uh, unfortunately treated with high pressures and came to autopsy. And what you see here, I think pretty clearly, is that in the dependent areas, there's uh, consolidation, fibrosis, hemorrhagic changes. And in the non-dependent areas, this young man, of course, at the time was being treated with uh, supine in the supine position. You see emphysema this type changes, which uh, really show you the spectrum of ventilator-induced lung injury, as I'll, uh, as I'll go on to tell you about. It's local stretch and maybe local power that we need to consider. And any one single airway pressure monitored at the airway opening can't tell us all the information that we need. The size, the flexibility, and the strain of individual baby lung units vary with their locale, as I just mentioned, and with their number. As we go from a relatively healthy lung to one that's moderately affected to severely affected, we have fewer and fewer lung units which are thought to have similar compliance, whether they be healthy or whether they be uh, part of the ARDS. I'm not sure that's entirely true and certainly not true toward the end of the, of the disease process, but it is important to understand that that strain that we're trying to prevent and strain is the change in the longitudinal dimension related to its initial uh, uh, starting state, or if you want to think about it this way, the volume that you started with that corresponds to end expiratory pressure or PEEP and the end inspiratory pressure, which is the plateau pressure. And I think I'll make this more clear as I go on. Now, as I mentioned, we're looking at a given driving pressure measured at the airway opening. But what its effect is on the individual lung units depends on the associated lung unit compliance and its change in volume. So for example, if we think of a driving pressure of 20 centimeters of water, we're going from five to 25, a peep of five to a plateau of 25. If you have a compliant lung unit, then you have a large volume change and you overstretch it. You also, by the way, provide a lot of high energy input, which I'll get to in a second. If you have a non-compliant lung unit, that same driving pressure does not stretch very much. It's a small volume change in relation to the starting value. You have a low energy input and tolerated strain. So our focus must be on the individual lung units and not necessarily the whole lung. How we do that practically at the bedside is something I'll touch on toward the end. For example, if you try to inflate a balloon uh, with uh, the kind of force that Dizzy Gillespie could could use to generate a driving pressure, you get a you get an expansion and a and a result that you were looking for. But if you have a non-compliant unit, he can he can try to blow that uh, lid off that uh, container for uh, as many breaths as he can take and generate pressures that are much higher than what we customarily use. And we have no volume change, no energy change, no energy delivery. And we, we, uh, he, can, he cannot uh, accomplish any inflation. So the compliance of the individual unit is very important. 
Moreover, even if the, the pressure that we're using was understood, high pressure alone is only partly responsible for damage. If you have such a balloon, as I just mentioned, and uh, it's fully inflated, it has a high pressure. It bursts, though, when you increase the pressure that you apply to that balloon. You must add a little bit of volume more to stretch to the critical point and rupture the balloon. So the pressure alone doesn't do it. It's the pressure times the volume, the change in pressure times volume, which is an energy input. And, it, and this uh, this poolside uh, uh, photo, you see a balloon being being burst along its fracture lines, which are its most sensitive and vulnerable pieces. The point is the pressure alone by itself doesn't tell you all the information. You need to factor in volume and change in volume. And this is what Gattinoni uh, Luciano, who was a close friend of mine, uh, suggested a long time ago, that uh, we need to focus more on power, which is the product of individual energy per cycle times frequency. So power is the respiratory rate, circled in green there, times the pressure uh, and volume product. So it's the it's the pieces that are necessary to distend the lung, to move the gas into the lung, and to keep it open. So whatever number of breaths you, you take per unit time, times the energy per, per, uh, per cycle, is the power as he defined it. There are varied power formulas that are being used uh, in in uh, in research and to a limited extent at the bedside, and all of them seem to work pretty well. But energy and power are only part of the Villi stimulus. If we think of the fact that you need energy to damage and you use the entire energy that was put in per cycle, what you do is you're looking at an area of airway pressure times volume. Now, under constant flow conditions, you have you know, a, a flow-resistive pressure, you have uh, a driving pressure, and you have a PEEP to, to contend with. But until you cross a certain value of a threshold pressure, then you don't get the damaging energy that is necessary to inflict ener inflict damage. Think if think if you will about uh, someone who is running a marathon. They take deep breaths, much bigger than the breaths that we give to, to patients at the bedside. But they don't damage their lungs at the end of three to four hours because they haven't crossed a, a threshold pressure that overstrains those individual lung units we were talking about. But energy delivered under high strain does have the potential for overstretching and signaling or actually uh, fracturing uh, matrix elements that constitute the villi. So damaging energy it needs to be considered. And you need to require, you, you need to consider the, the threshold pressure that you need to cross in order for the the energy per cycle and therefore the power to be damaging. I'm going rather quickly and I hope that it's it's clear what I'm trying to say here. It's not just pressure, it's pressure volume 
and it's related through energy and it's related through damaging fraction of energy that we get the damaging power and the village potential. The energy components of inflation uh, are three, as I mentioned before. There's the flow resistive piece, there's the driving pressure piece, and there's a peep related piece. Uh, and that energy per cycle, um, some people have said, well, all you need to know, know is the driving pressure, part of that energy, if you're concentrating on energy, and then you'll be fine. Peep and flow may be ir irrelevant because peep is, quote, a static value, and flow is supposedly dissipated simply in the in the small airways, uh, large airways, and then and then smaller airways. But PEEP itself helps you cross that threshold I was talking about before. The vulnerable lung units, which tend to be at the interfaces between closed and open lung units, uh, in the beginning uh, of an airway pressure increase, there are many of them. They're below the threshold value, but as you increase the PEEP in steps, the same driving pressure then begins to cause some of them to be overstrained there are fewer of them because you've recruited, but those that remain unrecruited um, uh, are subjected to more damaging energy and strain. The point here is that with the same driving pressure, not only do we need to consider volume, but also the positive and expiratory pressure that we're using. It has been said that if you take driving pressure and multiply it by frequency, it might be sufficiently improved to account for uh, most of what we need to know about damaging energy and power. But is driving pressure sufficiently improved by taking account of its rate, repetition rate? I can't think of a, a panel of authors that I, I uh, admire more than the ones here listed here. And they published a nice paper in the Blue Journal, the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, that said exactly that that if we take a mathematical computation based on respiratory rate and changes in driving pressure, it predicts the outcome uh, quite well in comparison to using anything else. But again, I ask this, can any pressure acting alone cause villi? Bertrand Russell, who was a philosopher, mathematician, and genius, basically, in the, in the 40s and 50s, said the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. Well, I don't claim to be a wise person, uh, but I'm certainly not a fanatic. And uh, I think there is a good reason to, to concern ourselves that we can do better. Remember I said at the beginning that you had two static pressures, the plateau pressure and you had the peep. You have a difference of the two pressures and you have driving pressure. These are This is the difference between two static pressures. And static pressures themselves do not cause motion or damage, as you will recognize in this room held up by columns. Again, energy input is needed to damage tissue. Energy can't be created or destroyed, or at least mechanical energy can't be created or destroyed, only transformed by the uh, first law of thermodynamics. And when you're talking about mechanical problems, it's potential energy and kinetic energy that converts to heat or deformation that we're, that we're thinking about here. Potential energy, she is pulling back that arrow with the same, same damage force 
that the kinetic energy, once it's released, will will cause damage uh, uh, when uh, there's there's deformation and and heat generation. So just to take a breather, we've been talking about the the sequence of evolving concepts of lung protection, and we've talked a little bit about ventilating power, which is the the uh, product of frequency and energy per cycle, low damaging power, which means you have to cross a threshold to to have the potential to injure. And we're actually thinking these days more about low cumulative injurious strains as the mechanical stimulus for Villi. Cumulative, over time, injurious, the the damaging uh, the da- damaging energy and power per cycle, and the strain, which is the increment of uh, of linear dimension over its base base value. Low ventilating power. Now Luciano suggested that we could take a look at each uh, individual t- uh, cycle the energy that was put in per cycle, add them up over a minute, call that power, and then that was what was damaging the lung. Well, let's see if I had a, a, a cup of coffee and I went for part of, part of the distance on a flat surface, then lifted it to a new potential energy, lifted it again, lifted it again, lifted it again in a series of cycles like we do with mechanical ventilation and tidal volume. Now, this builds up a lot of energy per unit time, the time being one minute. But is this frequency times pressure times volume, damaging power, or just the cumulative accumulated safe energy? Remember, there are interrupted cycles of safe energy, and these are this is a very unusual form of uh, power uh, that we're talking about when we talk about it at the bedside these days. Actually, if I take that same coffee cup with all that potential energy put into it and release it, you know what happens. You spill the coffee and you break the cup. So monotonous and interrupted inflation cycles may not be what we need to consider here. We need to consider more than that. How the damaging energy is delivered per cycle matters. Now, the intracycle energy below and above a threshold, you can consider either safe or unsafe based on what I've said before. Look at the uh, the colored areas, which is the elastic alveolar pressure, part of which is PEEP in the gray, and part of which is related to the driving force and ultimately the driving pressure. So you, if you could set the threshold, the pressure threshold that began to cause damage then you'd have a handle perhaps on how we could quantify using using uh, information that we have at the bedside to uh, zone in on, on damaging energy and power. This is from a recent paper uh, that we, we published. Um, again, it's the same themes. If you look at the blue line, you have... Uh, you have the threshold. Uh, uh, you you have the, the, the threshold pressure, and if you never reach that threshold pressure with an elastic with an elastic force during the tidal cycle, 
you deliver a lot of power, but it's not damaging. If you do cross that threshold, however, you do provide some some uh, damage energy, energy per cycle, and the accumulated amount uh, can be potentially hazardous. You can do that by rising higher above the threshold uh, for fewer cycles or lower, but still above threshold for, for more numerous uh, uh, respiratory rate. So again, the threshold and the energy per cycle uh, de determines the damaging energy per cycle and the frequency determines the amount of power, whether it be safe or dangerous. What about flow? We've been talking about pressures and and uh, elastic pressures and sort of forgetting a little bit about the, the flow that goes into the patient. Faster flows boost the tissue expansion rates and reduce the threshold pressure. The expansion rate of the parenchyma is governed by the flow that you're using. Yes, you dissipate energy, but you also uh, reach the elastic uh, limits of your your uh, your lung at a faster rate, and I was interested in this a while ago, and still am, uh, as a, a potential contributor to the lead. Faster flow accentuates the stress and strain from a visco from viscoelastic tissue drag. In other words, if you have two non-homogeneous structures that are linked up one that's movable and one is, that is less movable. And you pull it apart faster, pull, you develop stress focusing at the junction of the closed and the open lung unit, not just because of geometrical forces, but because of the dynamic forces of faster flow, which accelerates the viscoelastic. We are looking at elastic pressures. The viscoelastic piece is accentuated by tissue drag, which is accentuated by, by flow. So theoretically, flow is kind of important. And in fact, flow amplitude, the amount of, of average flow we put in, and the profile time the delivery of intracycle power. This idea of intracycle power, actually, we put into, into press a few years ago. When you think about power and just cycle times frequency, you get what was originally said to be power in 2016 by Luciano. But he and I agree, and we co-authored this paper with Patricia Rocco and, and my colleague, Philip Crook, uh, that the elastic power, whether that be safe or dangerous, is, is applied over the, the inspiratory time. And at the end of the inspiratory time, you uh, have put in the same amount of energy. The total amount of elastic energy is equal for all patterns that you use, whether it be pressure preset ventilation, or we call pressure control, constant flow, decelerating flow, accelerating flow, or sinusoidal flow. And we breathe now with sinusoidal flow during natural spontaneous breathing. You get different patterns of how that elastic power develops and different amounts of pressure and power, I mean power that exceeds a potential threshold pressure. So again, for, this is purely theoretical, but it makes sense that if we're thinking about power and damaging power, we should consider the threshold for elastic power damage and the profile of and the amplitude of the flow that we're using to, to achieve it. 
And on a, se a separate paper, we, we looked at the uh, distribution of power within the lung when you have different mechanical properties, as I showed you in the very beginning. Spatial power distributions in local strains do differ as well. And I don't want to go into this in any detail. It's again theoretical, but measuring pressure and, and, and flow and volume at the at the airway opening to determine damaging power doesn't tell you how that damaging power is really distributed. Um, it does tell you something about the entire entity, but not necessarily the local factors that you might need to know. The intracycle power distributes by regional mechanical properties of the, of the, the heterogeneous lung of ARDS. Now, there's very little evidence in the literature that, that suggested that the flow profile is important, but this is kind of an interesting one. If you take pressure-controlled very uh, ventilation on the left left panel, and constant flow ventilation on the middle and and uh, right hand panels, you see that the amplitude has changed with the the constant flow. The profile has changed with constant flow, and in fact, the uh, pressure control decelerating ramp type of flow profile, which is associated with pressure control and the same basic driving pressure causes different different levels of damage in a vulnerable uh, animal, which and this was by Maeda and colleagues from Japan in 2004. And I don't think the, the uh, this type of experiment has been repeated or, or, uh, or verified, but it certainly is a convincing one to read. It was in a very good journal, Anesthesiology, uh, in, in 2004. What's the point here? The point is that the driving pressure was identical. The tidal volume was identical. The inspiratory time was different, and the flow profile was different. And so the, the amplitude of flow and the profile of flow seem to have affected uh, the nature of the damage that was incurred. So the take-home message from this, this little segment is that potentially damage, damaging tidal energy and power distribute asymmetrically within the homogeneous environment of the acutely injured lung. Clinician-selected flow profiles not only influence the timing of power delivery, but also spatially distribute the attendant strains of expansion. Conclusion, flow amplitude and waveform may be relatively neglected in modifiable determinants of really risk when ventilating our ser most serious patients with ARDS. There are other important things to consider, and the principle of power concentration needs to be understood if you're going to focus on power. If I take a healthy lung on the left, and I take a moderately severe ARDS lung in the middle and severe ARDS lung on the right, and I assign those lungs the same external task, and let's say I use an airway pressure of 30 centimeters of water, and I deliver a global power of four joules per minute. A joule is a watt per second. Um, uh, I should say a watt second, excuse me, and is, a, is a, an appropriate measure for ventilatory power. So I have a global power of four joules per minute with a big capacity lung, the healthy lung on the left, the normal lung, but with a smaller lung, the specific power is much, much greater than that. Uh, and when I say much greater, I mean it may be five or six times that. 
because you're assigning the same ventilation power to a much smaller capacity lung. The point here is that the capacity of the lung is important to consider. Unlike pressure, remember, pressure, it was the same in both of these situations in driving pressure too. Unlike pressure, the shrinking baby lung concentrates power and increases specific flow velocity. I mentioned that flow velocity was important. And the smaller the aerated space, the smaller the baby lung, the more you're concentrating power. And if it's damaging, you may get into a cyclical process, as Luciano and I wrote about in uh, 2020. We call that the, the Villi Vortex. In other words, you increase the, the ventilation load on a small baby lung. You increase its specific power because it's small. You get intolerable strain on the matrix fibrils, which hold the lung together. You get progressive stress loading of the fibrils that remain intact. You get unit dropout and an increased ventilation load again because you've got an inefficient lung. I know this is a little bit of a mouthful if you haven't heard it before, but basically pressures and 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 volumes, the things that we concentrate on with our ventilator settings, if we're in error with those, we may have a shrinking baby lung and an accelerating process. And I think we've all seen patients who come to the come to the hospital on day one looking with modest infiltrates that were treated appropriately, and the next day they have exploded into a full-blown ARDS. So you might ask, if that's true, what stops the progression? Well, what might stop the progression is the buttressing that occurs when these units get surrounded by those that are consolidated and, uh, and out of commission. The same fragile unit may be buttressed against uh, further stress strain and the things that cause villi. So fewer aerated units predisposed to end tidal hyperinflation. We talked about how if you have a similar number of units that are are equally vulnerable, the fewer that you have, the worse condition you are in. And uh, in this example, if you put in the same tidal volume into the lung on the right, you expand it to to bursting to a, a level that may, may risk bursting, whereas the 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 ones that are uh, involved in a in a bigger capacity lung uh, don't have that end inspiratory overinflation. At end expiration, they all look the same, or at least the pressures look the same. You don't have auto peep, but at the at the end of inflation you have hyperinflation. And that is something that I think is less well appreciated in ARDS than it should be. So summarizing now, and I'm coming closer to the end, power is the damaging energy per cycle affected by the amplifiers of stress we've just been talking about, the reduced size of the baby lung, the mechanical heterogeneity, the viscoelastic drag, the dropout of stress-bearing elements, and the threshold for, for mechanical injury, vascular pressures and flows, baseline lung inflammatory state, et cetera, affect that. The frequency times the damaging energy per cycle is the damaging power. And the duration of that high power exposure is the mechanical stimulus for Villi. Now, how, what's a practical approach to safer ventilation? And uh, you may disagree with me, but 
at the highest level or the crudest level, I should say, once demands and co-contributors to vulnerability of the tissue are minimized, such as with prone positioning, ventilator settings assume top priority. In descending order of importance, those settings are as follows. One, driving pressure and PEEP. Two, minute ventilation. Three, inspiration to expiration ratio and flow profile. That's descending order of importance. Uh, minute ventilation being very important, but probably not, not so important if your driving pressure and PEEP are within acceptable limits to keep you below threshold. Lastly, where do we go from here? I've been thinking about this, and uh, some of my colleagues have too, and I think we're, we're kind of interested in these concepts, which we're working on at the present time. Pressure, volume, and power, things that we can measure, are correlated, but they're imprecise determinants of the tensile strain and hazardous tissue stretch that really we think is the mechanical cause of villi. So the, the question is, can we estimate the true risk of villi a little better by knowing something, something other than pressures and volumes and flows and powers, the things I've been talking about? Well, this is our latest paper. It, it may not be a bright idea, but if you can measure plateau pressure and driving pressure, then maybe, maybe you can also set a threshold pressure that makes sense to you, either 15 centimeters of water for driving pressure, or if you're consider, considering plateau pressure, 30. And mathematically, what, independently of the flow profile that you're using, by the way, you have the same amount of elastic energy delivered per cycle. You have a hazard ratio for driving pressure and a hazard ratio for elastic pressure. In other words, of the total energy that you're putting in, uh, if you can set for yourself a, a threshold pressure and measure the static pressure, which is the plateau pressure, or and the PEEP, then you can develop formulas for the, the hazard ratio of power, dry, damaging power, that are related um, to driving pressure or to pl plateau pressure. It's just an idea. It's not. It's certainly not proven by any means, but it makes sense in terms of all of the, all the things I've been talking about so far. Remember also that I, I said in the beginning that we have different locales in the lung that are different risks for overstretching. Those at, at the top of the lung or the, 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 the least dependent areas are already stretched pretty much, and it doesn't require much more threshold uh, threshold pressure to push them over the edge and get to the point of that bursting balloon, I guess. Uh, if you are at the closer to the base of the lung, ignoring the amplifiers of, of stress that we've been talking about, thinking only about stretch, your threshold pressure is higher because you have more, more uh, stretch to give it before it reaches a damaging, damaging point. So if you have different locales, you have different thresholds and vulnerabilities to stretch. And I emphasize that stretch, not necessarily uh, the, all the components we need to think about in terms of villi risk. So what else are we thinking about uh, that may make some sense? Well, I mentioned that ventilator-induced lung injury, we monitor by pressures, volumes, and flows. Where are they measured? 
They're measured inside the air pocket to communicate with the outside. But what we're really concerned about is what's happening at the periphery. That's where the cells are. That's where the microvessels are. That's where the matrix is. And is pressure an optimal uh, indicator of how much uh, stress and strain uh, we're going to be applying? In theory, possibly not. It's tension at the at the periphery that really makes the most sense to consider. I don't want to go into de- detail here. This is a paper that's under evaluation at the present time, but the concept I think is pretty clear. The energy that you put into the center, we call it radial energy, is transferred to the surface, and the surface energy is the same as the radial energy that you put in, but it's distributed differently so that the tension area product, which is the the surface energy, that product equals the pressure volume product that we're we're customarily uh, working with, but the tension rises more than the area does. And so, what I'm trying to say is that you you're balancing the forces uh, with an internal pressure and an external re- recoil pressure according to the law of Laplace. And what he said is that the pressure times the radius divided by two is the tension. And if you think about it, you you come from a small volume to a larger volume. You have less curvature and and more tension developed to to create the force that you need to balance the pressure. If you have a larger dimension, what's going to happen is that the the force vector is, is not as aligned as it could be to 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 balance the internal force that you're you're trying to counterbalance. Again, it's it's a little bit complicated for a presentation like this, but please rest assured that I, I don't think that we're all all the way there in terms of what we can monitor and and what the relationship to Vili is. In fact, the law of Laplace is not just tension equals PR divided by two, but PR divided by two sigma, where sigma is the wall thickness. And things such as the, the thickness of the alveolar structure, as we would have at low lung volumes, uh, may play a role in uh, determining how much uh, how much tension is developed. And tension, by the way, is a li- is force per unit length, whereas pressure is a force per unit area. Force per unit length is sort of a ripping force, and can be thought of as something that the uh, the force that is going to be ripping those fibrils that we've been talking about. So, okay, Marini, shut up. It's a nice theory, but where's the evidence for that? It's a good question, but it's only the log- it's only logical and it's the next step. And I've been trying to do that most of my career. I took inspiration from these guys, Otis, Ron, and Fenn, who wrote the Handbook of Physiology Med- Mechanics section and uh, were intimately involved with mechanics. In this era of evidence-based population statistics, remember that a little physiology goes a long way and should be a fundamental part of the evidence that we consider. Physiology will always be the basis for intelligent medicine in the intensive care unit, said John West at the ATS address in in 2015, and Luciano and I have agreed about that long before I heard that uh, brilliant lecture by a brilliant guy, John West, who probably is the greatest living respiratory physiologist that I'm aware of. 
So with that, I'd like to, to close my rather long and complicated uh, presentation and take any questions that you might have for me.